Welcome back to Chi Alpha. I'm so excited that you guys are all here tonight. If this is your first time with us, thank you for joining us. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. I'd love the opportunity to meet you after service. Our prayer is that you will feel like you're at home here in Chi Alpha. You also picked a very fun and interesting night to make your first adventure to Chi Alpha. I promise you I don't talk about sex every week, but that's what you're here for. Uh, so that's a, a one-time thing. Anyways, before we jump into sex, though, let's talk about my high school career. When I, nope, 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 nope. You're going to feel real weird when I tell you this story. So when I was in high school, my friends and I, we coached a fifth-grade flag football team. Yep, yep, get your minds out of the gutter. Anyways, so when I was coaching this team, I was not coaching them to, like, help them learn or get better. See, I had one desire when I took on this coaching job. I wanted to win. My number one strength is competition in the Strengths Finder, so I really wanted to win. So we did whatever it took to win. See, youth flag football, if you have never played a youth sport, it's supposed to be like equal playing time, learning the game, getting some good fundamentals, but I had zero interest in that. So I did two things that I probably shouldn't have looking back. First of all, we had what I called our fourth quarter team. So in youth sports, it's supposed to be like half the team plays the first half, half the team plays the second half, and you like divide them up equally so they have equal talent. But then I thought, well, that doesn't make sense because in the fourth quarter, in case we're losing, I want to win. So I need to have my best players on the, on the field. So I created this fourth quarter team. So I made our best players, they got to play. And then the fifth graders who weren't quite as good enough, they got to go straight to the bench during the fourth quarter. So that probably wasn't right, but I did it because technically there was not a rule that said I could not do it. I think the parents and the other team just assumed we wouldn't do that, but I didn't see it in the rule book, so I did it. Second thing that I did was probably a slightly worse, maybe. So flag football is it's flags. You grab a flag, which obviously means it's not like tackle football. Like they don't wear pads or anything. So you're supposed to like avoid conflict at all costs. But technically, the rule said nothing that you could not like have contact with the other team. So I told our team, if you can't get their flags, just lay them out because then we're not going to lose. We taught the fifth graders to win at all costs because technically it didn't say anywhere in the rules that you couldn't hit them. See, I think the league probably just assumed that the adult coaches will be mature enough to tell their kids, hey, don't hit each other just so you can win a fifth grade flag football team. See, they were wrong. I told them to do just that. And in case you're wondering, if you'll show this picture, that's the Rainbow Warriors. I used to wear a backwards hat with my thing popping out. That's all right. We were actually at Orange League. You see a trophy there, right? In case you're curious, my team only lost one game. We got first place. But we can, anyways, keep going. <laughs> Thank you. This, uh, you never clap for me. This is great. All right, you can put that away now. That makes me feel really sinful when I look at those children's lives I screwed up. But <laughs> many of us in this room, if we're honest, I think sometimes we're like I was as a coach. We follow the rules. We do whatever we can to technically stay in bounds. But then we also do everything we can to break the rules without actually crossing the line. See, this is most prevalent in our lives with our sexuality. Our current cultural moment tells us that sexuality is an opportunity for freedom, that putting restraints on ourselves sexually is actually seen as like oppressing ourselves. We're told we need to explore, we need to discover what we want sexually, that we need to try things out before we lock things in for our future. See, our culture is completely sexualized, and our culture tells us you can kind of do whatever you want. This makes it so that we feel like it's a cultural malpractice if we don't express our sexuality in whatever way our heart desires. There's no crossing the line in regards to our culture 
sexually. Couple that, that culture, with an inner flesh that we talked about earlier this semester, which is just a strong desire for sexual pleasure. And we're left with the sermon title tonight, which is a combustion, which is the sermon title tonight. No one laughed. I thought I was going to get some laughs. Combustion, it's like it's a sex joke. Anyways, last year it was called The Climax because it was all based off the plot line of a story. So this is why I pastor college students and not adults. I would get fired so quickly. But, or children, that'd be worse, but we'll keep going. Tonight, I'm sorry, I'm in a weird mood today. We're going to keep going. Tonight, we are in part three of our series entitled Wind Sparks Fly. This whole series is based off of a book entitled Loveology by John Mark Comer. In week one, we talked about the foundation of love, which is laying down our lives to other people. Last week, we talked about dating and the four marks of a healthy dating relationship, which were the chase, and then we had the line, which we'll talk more about tonight. Then we went to friends, and we ended with the journey to the day. We thought through this idea that we must keep the end in mind at all times, and we need to date with intentionality if we want to succeed in our dating relationships. Every dating relationship should be going somewhere, either closer to or farther away from marriage. Our series has been building up to tonight. We felt tension. We felt the energy rising. Maybe that's just me. As we get ready for tonight. And tonight... We're going to talk about sex, baby, going to talk about, oh, everyone just said like, ah, you're old, that song's old. Uh, Fun, right? So before we dive in, I know that this topic is awkward. I know, put that away. Don't write, don't put that in your notes. Noah, take that out of the sermon. We'll just keep going. But I know that the subject of sex is awkward. I know that it's not something that's always fun. I know that if we're honest, a lot of you are coming in here with some sexual baggage and some things that might bring you shame. I want to start before we dive into this subject just to tell you that there's this thing called grace, meaning that no matter what you come in with, God loves you. God has a plan for your life, and you're never too far gone. So you might hear some things that might challenge you a little bit tonight. I want you to know this is all bathed in the idea of grace, that Jesus can wipe you clean, he can wash you white as snow because God loves you no matter what you've done. Keep that in mind as we go throughout tonight. I want to tell you guys a story from the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. But before we tell this story, I want to give you some background information. Tonight we're going to be reading about a guy named Samson. Samson had a special calling over his life from the time he was in his mother's womb. While in his mother's womb, God said that he's supposed to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who was dedicated to God. Nazarites had to follow three rules. Number one, they were not allowed to cut their hair. Second, they weren't allowed to drink wine. And finally, they were not allowed to touch a dead body. Never. Even when their parents died, they weren't supposed to touch that body. They were forbidden to touch dead things as a way to stay pure before God. And God took this vow very seriously. Samson was pretty unique, though, because most people who took this Nazarite vow only did it for like a year or two. But Samson was a Nazarite for life. However, Samson doesn't do a great job of staying pure before the Lord. Samson starts his story by going and falling in love with a girl who's from the enemy country. He was supposed to be like a warrior who destroyed the enemy, not flirted with them. But Samson screwed up in the beginning. And then we're going to get to the story we're going to read tonight. See, Samson's on his way back from just meeting this girl that he likes. And he goes there to be with his family. And we're going to pick up right there in Judges 14, 5 through 9. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him running. Roaring, not running. That'd be scary too, though. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. 
I've never thought of this. How do you tear a young goat? That sounds hard too. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eye. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there is a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hand and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you so much. God, I pray for any feeling of condemnation in this room just to go away, God, that we can just trust that you're good and that you love us and there's grace. In your name, amen. Amen. The main idea tonight is this. When sparks fly, we must trust the creator of sex over his creation. When sparks fly, we must trust the creator of sex over his creation. You might be rightfully asking yourself, what does a man killing a lion with his bare hands and eating some honey have anything to do with sex? It's a fair question, but it has everything to do with sex. We have to remember that Samson was a Nazarite. This meant that he was set apart for God. It's this word consecrate. God had incredible plans for him and wanted to do incredible things through him. See, God, or Samson's creator loved him dearly. However, he gave him some parameters in his life to protect him. One of which is he was not supposed to touch dead things. Remember, we talked about that. But Samson was sly. As he's passing this dead lion's carcass, he knows he's not supposed to touch the lion because it's dead, but he sees honey, and he really wants the honey. So he thinks to himself, how can I get what I want and do what I think is best without technically breaking what God told me to do? He's like, I get it. I got a plan. I'm going to be super careful. He gets really close to the dead body. He's like, but I'm not going to touch it. So he like contorts his arm, and he like gets in there and scoops out the honey and takes it out, and he gets what he wants without breaking the rules. We do this all the time with our sex lives. Before we jump into that, though, we need to realize that sex is good. Sex is a good gift from God when we do it in the right context. Just like the Nazarite vow was a good gift to Samson, sex is a good gift to us. God's first command to humanity in regards to sex was not a negative one. It wasn't like, don't do that. Instead, it was a positive one. His first command to us in regards to sex was to be fruitful and multiply. Come on, somebody. You come, some of you guys are married. You need to start making babies or something. Okay. Hey. <laughs> Leave that part out. But too often in church environments, we focus on the negatives. We're like, don't watch porn. Don't make out and don't have sex before marriage. And I agree with all those things. Hear me, we should not do those things. But when God created sex, he created it as a positive thing. Sex is not supposed to be something that brings us guilt or shame, but instead it's supposed to bring us joy. Imagine this, if you had nothing to hide, nothing to feel shame about in regards to your sex life. That'd be pretty cool. Adam and Eve, they had sex before they sinned. So humanity was sexual before we were sinful. Because in the right context, sex is a great gift. The problem started happening, though, when we started choosing the creation over the creator. Going back to the story of Adam and Eve, Eve decided that she wanted the fruit that God had created more than she wanted God himself. And this set us down a trajectory where we kept choosing God's creation over him. Sex was meant to be a good gift to enjoy, but we turned it into a God that we bow to. And this God is hard to satisfy. What was supposed to be life-giving has turned into a power that dominates us, that pulls us into addictions and brings shame upon our lives. Colmer says that this is what happens when sex is your God. When sex is your God, you have to download porn. You have to jack off. You have to sleep with your boyfriend. You have to let him touch you. You have to give into your body's cravings, even if you know it's going to steal from your future. You have no choice because you're a slave. 
We like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. But to Jesus, that's not freedom. That's slavery. Freedom, at least in Jesus' mind, is the ability to do whatever you should. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our Lives at Large series. See, it's to enjoy the world as God intended. We think that having no boundaries in our life is the key to freedom, when in actuality, this is what enslaves us. Because sex controls us. Sex has power. Sex outside the context that God designed it to be done in is anything but freeing. We have to trust the Creator. We need to trust that God knows best in regards to our sex lives. That's faith, right? Faith is trust, so we trust that God is smarter than us. This is the foundation of our discussion tonight, that God's not out to steal your fun. No, God just knows that sex outside of his context is dangerous and controlling. We need to trust that God may just know more than we do in regards to what a healthy sex life could be. If we don't trust our creator, we will try to trust in his creation. Then we'll think sex will satisfy me. We think that finally when I get to sleep with him or her, when I get my next porn fix, then I'll be free. Then I'll feel good. And this controls our thought life. When in actuality, not only does sex enslave you, it will let you down. It never lives up to the hype. The creation is not as good as the creator. Hear me, sex is fun. But it's not everything. It's only satisfying in the context of a relationship. Let's go back to Samson. So Samson got as close to the line of touching the dead animal as possible. This is a pattern in Samson's life. He would do just enough to please his role. Sometimes he'd go over the line, and eventually he actually loses his anointing from God because of a sexual relationship with a girl named Delilah. He sets himself up for failure by being willing to tiptoe around the rules instead of just trusting that God knows best. So God's best for Samson was not touching a dead body. What's God's best for us in regards to our sex lives? See, in the church world, we're constantly told, don't have sex before marriage, don't have sex before marriage, don't have sex before marriage which I fully agree with. However, over the past few years as I've read scripture, I've learned something. The Bible never actually says don't have sex before marriage. That's nowhere in there. What it says is actually found in Matthew chapter 5. This is when Jesus is teaching on what it looks like to be in his kingdom, what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. In verses 27 through 28, he tells us exactly what a sexual life should look like for a follower of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, one of the Ten Commandments was to not commit adultery. One of the big rules of following God is to not sleep with your neighbor's wife not cheat on your spouse. That's what adultery is in the Old Testament. But now we're in the New Testament, and Jesus ups the ante. Jesus says that if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery and sinned. Jesus is telling us that adultery is not just sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. He says it's lusting. The book of Matthew was written in the Greek language, and the word for lust is this word epithemio. And this word epithemio just means to have a desire for, to long for. So that's what lusting is, having a desire for or longing for something sexual. 1 Corinthians 6, the author Paul tells us, gives us a nice big tea or tip on sexual sin. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. This is another way of saying flee from lust. Comer says this about 1 Corinthians 6. The phrase sexual, sexual immorality is porneia in Greek. It's a junk drawer word. Paul means any and all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Everything from sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, friends with benefits, casual sex, oral sex, adultery, and prostitution to porn, raunchy movies, adult films, strip clubs, it's all porneia. It's all sexual sin. Any and all sexual activity or thoughts outside of marriage between a man and a woman is lust. Hear me though, this 
obviously excludes if something sexual is done to you. You have nothing to repent of if something was done to you that was not consensual. That sin is completely on the perpetrator, okay? I just want to say that. that. If something sexual was done to you, you have no reason to feel guilt and shame. That's not your fault. That was done to you. But anything that we consensually do, anything that makes us have a desire for sex, an aching for sex, anything that turns us on is lust. So it's when your thoughts go from affection, like, wow, I love them, she's beautiful, he's so handsome, to arousal, I want to rip their shirt off, that's when you're lusting. Also recognize that arousal or lust is not attraction. It's okay to look at someone and think, wow, that is a good-looking human being. For example, my wife Taylor is married to me, so I should be the only one who brings arousal to her. Sorry, it works, but let's keep going. However, if she looks at Chris Evans and says, wow, that is a handsome man, that's okay. Attraction is different from action. I get it. I agree that Chris Evans is quite a handsome guy. You can be attracted to someone and thinking they're attracted without acting on it and thinking sexual thoughts or doing sexual activity with them. Because let's say you're dating. I hope you find your significant other attractive. If not, that's probably not good for a completely different reason. However, you can be attracted to someone without lusting after them. The key is when your affection starts turning to arousal, you shut it down. Again, the Bible never says don't have sex before marriage. No, it starts way before that. It starts with not even thinking sexual thoughts about people that aren't your spouse, let alone making out with them, living with them, touching someone who's not your spouse. That's clearly sin if even thinking sexual thoughts about them is sin. Going back to Jesus' sermon in Matthew, he tells us this is what we should do if we lust. Matthew 5, 29 says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I know that seems harsh. You're like, wait, God wants me to cut off what? However, what God is saying here is not a harsh punishment. He's giving you a tip to help you live a healthier life. He's saying it is better for you to lose your hand than for you to lose your whole life. He's not actually saying to cut off your sin. What he's saying, or cut off your hand, what he's saying to do is to avoid sin, especially sexual immorality at all costs. No matter what it costs you, as long as it's not sending you to hell, it's better than being sent to hell. So I want you guys to picture something with me, okay? I want you to imagine that right over here, this is a cliff, okay? But this cliff is not just like a straight edge. This cliff is pointed, so it's kind of like a triangle. So it keeps getting smaller and smaller. It's harder to work on. And in our minds, falling off the edge of the cliff is having sex outside of marriage or like watching porn. We kind of view those the two things. I probably shouldn't do those. So sexual intercourse, porn, I've jumped off the cliff. Otherwise, we think we're good. So we think maybe I can just look on Instagram. I can wander over to the Discover tab or some accounts I know is going to have a girl in a bikini. They're not naked, so I'm good. Or maybe we think I can just look through those naughty Snapchat stories. Snapchat's really bad. Don't get on Snapchat, but we'll keep going. We think people aren't having sex. It's just risque pictures. Or I won't actually watch porn, but I can just give in to myself a little bit, right? Or maybe you're in a relationship and you think, I can spend the night with my significant other. We can make out. We can handle it. We can cuddle all night. We won't have sex. I promise. Again, the Bible never says don't have sex. We need to realize that the edge of the cliff, falling off the cliff of sexual sin, is not sexual intercourse. It's lust. Anything that causes us to lust is us jumping off the cliff. That picture of a girl in a bikini is probably going to make you lust and turn you on. If you make out with your boyfriend 
you will probably lust after them. If not, you're probably doing it wrong, okay? <laughs> I'm just being honest. If you don't lust when making out, then one of y'all got to figure something out. Watch a YouTube tutorial or something. <laughs> the point of making out is not just to make out, right? No, the point, the reason you make out with someone is to turn you on so then you can have sex. It's like a car. You don't get in the car in the garage, turn on the car, and wait for it to heat up just to say, that was fun, let's get out now. <laughs> That's not the reason you heat on the, put the heat on in the car. you got to drive the car. And until you're married, you can't drive that car, baby. So why turn on the heat? Hmm. Our bodies are not designed to get turned on and then immediately shut it off before we cross the big line of sexual intercourse. No, God made the cliff lust because he, he's smarter than us and he knows that we've already committed adultery when we have sexual thoughts in our mind. And after you engage your brain in sexual thoughts, it's really hard to stop yourself. We were not designed to get really, really horny and then stop immediately. That's not the way your body was designed. So as we try and try to get as close to the cliff as we can without jumping off, it becomes harder and harder. We are not made to dangle on the cliff. I feel like we're like, I can just do this and dangle and I'll be fine. Like, God, I promise I won't sin, I won't sin. And then we fall. At least I'm not very coordinated, so I would fall. We are not made to dangle off the cliff. We are like Samson. We really want the honey, but we don't want to touch the dead body. We're in a battle. We really want this honey, but we also want to avoid lust, right? If you're a Jesus follower, you want to obey him. So we then make excuses for ourselves, and we find ways to get the honey that don't feel as wrong. We kind of do some sexual stuff. We think we're not sinning. Again, we're trying to like really tiptoe and not fall off. But why? This is just making it harder for ourselves. We like to test ourselves. How much can I dangle off the cliff? For example, if getting on Instagram usually leads to you seeing a shirtless dude, which causes you to have sexual thoughts about him, which leads to you watching porn, here's an idea. Get rid of Instagram. Then you're not going to see the shirtless dude and you're not going to watch porn. Don't make it harder for yourself than it needs to be. Or if you're in a relationship and if you do some data searching and you realize that most of the time you cross your sexual boundaries after 10 p.m. when you're alone in your room with the door shut, here's an idea. You don't have to test your self-control. You don't, you don't need to make it harder for yourself. How about just don't hang out past 10 p.m. with the door shut in your room? Make it easier for yourself. It's not how close can I get to the cliff without falling off. It's no, just don't fall off. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. This means that living with your significant other before marriage is not a good idea whatsoever. This is like hanging on by one tiny nail on the edge of the cliff. You are just setting yourself to fall off and fail. If you are attracted to your significant other whatsoever, you will probably cross physical boundaries if you live together. Unless you are Jesus himself, you're probably not that strong. I could not live with Taylor and not lust after her. I venture to guess you can't either. If you are attracted to each other and you are living in tight quarters with each other, you are going to lust after them. I can almost promise you. And saving money, having a nice living situation, none of that is worth sin. There's no good reason to live with your significant other before marriage. If you're here and you are already living with your significant other, I'm not saying this to judge you or to condemn you. That's not my purpose here. Because I and Jesus still love you so, so much. But I also love you too much to let you live in sin. I love you too much to let yourself set yourself up for failure. Hear me, though. This is not a place of judgment, but a place of freedom. So I will do whatever it takes to help you be free. 
So if you've already signed a lease to live with your significant other for the next semester, I'm telling you to cut it off. I'm saying break the lease, find a subleaser, do something to avoid that sin. The Bible does not say you should avoid sexual sin unless it's going to cause you to lose some money or break a contract or have to work hard or not have as fun of a living situation. No, it says to cut sin off. And as I preach this hard truth, I want to say we're here to help. If you've signed a lease to live with your significant other and you decide you don't want to do that, you don't want to live that sinful life, talk to me. I will do whatever I can to help you fix it. I will work tirelessly to help you pay it for it, to help you find a sublease, to help you find something. I will personally, with my own time, do whatever it takes to get you out of that situation that's going to set you up for failure. So it's not just we tell you these sinful things to give you chains and make it so you can't get out of it. No, we will help you. I promise you there's people in this room that can help you find a place to live. So if you've already set yourself up for failure, the beauty of the gospel is you're not stuck. There's ways out. Even if you already signed a lease, there's ways out. I promise you. I want you to think back to the cliff. If you're building a fence to help keep you from falling over the cliff, you're not going to build a fence at the edge of the cliff, right? No, you should build it miles and miles away from the edge. That way, if you fall over the fence, you fall into nice grass. Instead of if you fall over the fence, you plummet to your death. No, build the fence a few feet back or miles or years and years and miles away so then you're not going to fall off and die. This means make your physical boundaries far from lust. Don't make your boundaries right at the edge and whatever can cause you to stumble. No, set it miles away so then if you cross your fence, you're still in lushy green pasture, not falling to death. Do as Jesus said to do. If something causes you to lust, cut it off. Get rid of it. Don't tempt yourself. Do as Paul said and flee sexual immorality. He didn't say, slowly back away from sexual immorality. No, he said, turn around and run. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Don't do whatever it takes to get as close to sinning without actually crossing some weird line that we make in our heads of what's right and wrong. No, sprint away. Practically, this means cutting things out of your life that cause you to lust. If you're in a relationship and if you guys just can't honor God with your relationship, maybe it's time to reevaluate. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you have boundaries that you've set, but if you're honest with yourself, they aren't really working. They're not set in stone. They're not a contract. You just made them with yourself. So just adjust them. It's never wrong to bring your boundaries in tighter. You don't need to have some kind of pride like, no, these are the boundaries you set and I've got it figured out. I don't need to do it. No, just fix it. Your pride's not worth sin. If you're struggling with pornography, I highly, highly encourage you to get an accountability software. For example, there's a software called Covenant Eyes that if you look at something inappropriate, it'll notify people in your life to help keep you accountable. That's a very easy way to cut off that sin. Please listen to this. You are not any more holy because you overcome your sin on your own and without help. There's no divine brownie points you're doing on your own. It's black and white, sin or not sin. You don't get more points in heaven for gritting your teeth and bearing it. No, use help. When you're feeling tempted, tell someone. I have a group of guys in my life that when they're struggling with sexual temptation, they will text or call me because nothing quite gets you out of the mood like talking to me on the phone. <laughs> It's a, it's a foolproof way. Every time someone's called me, no one's ever said they did something stupid afterwards. So like, yep, that pretty much ruined my vibe. So have a good night. It works. So call me. You can call me or you can call, like if you're a girl, maybe a girl, it'd be pretty weird if you called me, but call someone in your life. And I know this all seems extreme, right? I get it. I know they're like, this is so different than my culture. But Jesus is really clear. Jesus says if our eye causes us to sin, we are to cut it out. 
Obviously, it doesn't mean carving your eyeball out, but it means doing whatever we can to avoid sin. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. But you have to ask yourself, is the pain of staying the same greater than the pain of change? Do you truly want to overcome these sin struggles in your life? Because if you do, and if you're willing to do whatever it takes, I promise you, you can overcome your sexual sin with the power of God and some smart practical tips. I've heard a lot of things that people struggle with. I promise you, if you are vulnerable and if you want help, we can overcome it together. You're not in this alone. You've got a small group. You've got a family that loves you. So on one side of the cliff, there's lust, sexual sin, the creation of sex. So I told you to turn around and run that way, right, to flee from sexual sin. So what are we running to? On the other side, far away from our sin, is our creator, Jesus. We are made to run as far from the cliff as possible. That's the only way we can be safe, is to run to Jesus. Don't trust the creation, but trust the creator. The creator looked at Samson and said, you are special. There's a calling over your life. God looks at each and every one of us in the exact same way. You are set apart to be used by God. God knows what's best for us. It goes back, do we trust that God is good? We ask questions about the line. We think, what's okay? How far can we go? If we don't touch the line's body, can I still have the honey? But imagine, instead of asking questions like this, we could be asking, how close to Jesus can I get? How holy can I be? God wants us to be holy because he's holy. The word holy is kodesh in Hebrew. This word means dedicated to, special, different from the norm. We are to be dedicated to God. We are to be set apart for a special relationship with him. This is just like a marriage. I am set apart for Taylor, right? I got one wife. She's mine and I am hers. But in order to be set apart for her, I have to say no to something else, right? You cannot be set apart for everything. But we think saying no to a desire is like a burden, but it's actually anything but. When Taylor and I got married, my older brother who officiated our wedding, he asked me to commit to Taylor for life and death. He said, will you be exclusively hers? Will she be your only partner? And then I said, I do. Do you think the people that were sitting at our wedding were like, wow, what a sucker. He just committed to her. He's saying no to like three billion other women, or I guess maybe like one other if with my game, but anyways, we'll keep going, <laughs> that he could potentially have. What a killjoy. He's going to love her no matter what. Even when he doesn't want to, he's going to choose her. He's trapped. Oh, he lost his freedom. No, that's not what they were thinking. Because when I married Taylor, I found true freedom. See, I was saying no to other things. I was saying no not only to other females, saying no to playing video games all night, saying no to doing whatever I wanted. But now I get to say yes to my wife every single day, and that's the best yes I could ever give. Comer puts it this way, the same is true for holiness. We have to say no to all sorts of things, but we do so in order to say yes to life with God. To be holy, then, is to be like God. That was God's intent from the beginning. We are made in God's image. We are supposed to be like God all along, but sin warped our humanness. This is how we find freedom. We say no to other things, but in saying no to sin, we get to say yes to God, which is saying yes to living the life the way we are created to. This saying yes to Jesus is the smartest thing in the world because we're saying yes to the smartest being in the universe. We're not saying yes to some idiot who doesn't know what he's doing. We're saying yes to the creator of the whole thing, to someone who loves you, to a God that knows what's best. Remember, God's laws are not motivation for obedience, but instead descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective, meaning God is smarter than us. He has a better perspective. We must trust the creator of our lives, especially with our sex lives. So why does God tell us to avoid sexual sin? Is he just mad at us and want to be a prude? No. Why does God tell us to, that sex is only healthy 
in marriage between one man and one woman? Well, he does it because when these two are joined, when they're joined together, they're joined together as one flesh. The word for one in Hebrew is akad. Akad with the word flesh means fused together at the deepest levels. So when we do sexual actions with someone, he's saying we are fused together with them on deep levels. The lines blur between the two. So imagine two pieces of paper that each have glue on them, and you stick them together. They're fused together, right? This action cannot be undone without a lot of pain. Comer says that something powerful happens in sex. Two humans become a cod. They know each other, and this action cannot be undone. It's irreversible. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. That's the only container that can handle the nuclear force we call sex. When you try to rip these two pieces of paper apart, they leave parts themselves glued to each other, right? Because they're fused together. This is what happens when we do sexual activity with people who aren't our spouse. We leave a piece of ourselves behind with them. Comer says that the more people you sleep with, the more you start to hollow yourself out until you have nothing left to give away. This is why we're called to save our sexual lives for our spouse. We want to be able to give them our all. Our whole paper belongs to them. And even if you're in a serious relationship and you've given this, even if you're in a serious relationship and you think that you can give this person your piece of paper, but until you're married, until you've made a covenant before God, that paper doesn't belong to theirs. There's still a way out. A serious relationship is not strong enough to hold sex, only a covenant relationship, and that's marriage. When you have sexual relationship with someone that's not your spouse, you leave behind some scars. And I know this all too well. I've talked about the girlfriend I had my senior year of high school quite a bit and how we did not honor God with our boundaries. What does that actually mean? I say that a lot. We didn't honor God with our boundaries. Well, we didn't have sex. We didn't have intercourse. That was my cliff. I wasn't going to jump off that. However, we did everything else you can think of. And I'm convinced that it, same, it left the same amount of myself, the same amount of scars or pain behind that having sexual intercourse would have left because we weren't doing God's design. So it didn't matter that we weren't doing the deed. We were doing everything else. And it still left the same amount of pain. I'll be honest with you all. I still look back to that season in my life with so much regret. I've been married for five and a half years. It's the most amazing wife in the world, but I still feel so much regret about that. I'm a pastor. I spend time with the Lord every day, and that's still not enough to take away that regret. It's taken away the guilt. God's covered that sin. Right? I'm forgiven by the name of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washed me clean. So in God's eyes, I'm not sinful. In God's eyes, I'm still fully his, but in my own flesh, it still hurts. I still feel a lot of pain because I gave something to this girl that rightly belonged to God and then to Taylor. Not only that, I actually stole something that rightfully belonged to that girl's future husband. Sex is theft. When you have sexual relations with someone who's not your spouse, you're stealing from their joy, you're stealing from their relationship with God, and from their future spouse. See, we think, I just love him or her so much. I'm not sure I agree, to be honest. I think the proper sentence would be, I lust her so much. Comer says love's about giving, laying down our lives, but lust is about getting. Or maybe we say, I just need him. I need to have a physical relationship with him in order to feel loved, to feel wanted, to feel connected to my significant other. Maybe your love language is physical touch, and you feel like you need that physical connection in order for it to work. Are you sure you need it, or do you just want it? The Bible says deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow God daily, not just do whatever we want. Maybe you're trying to find fulfillment and happiness through a relationship with a person instead of through God. When we have a sexual relationship with our significant other, we're causing them to sin as well. True love would never want to harm someone, right? 
If you truly love them, you would love them enough to care about the relationship with God, and you'd care more about that than fulfilling a sexual desire in our own lives, feeling connected. See, the question is not, do you love your significant other too much so then you fall into sexual sin? No, the question is, do you love your significant other enough to protect them from sexual sin? We often think showing love is doing physical things with people, but in actuality, that's the opposite. Love is sacrifice, sacrificing present enjoyment for your and their relationship with God. Comer puts it this way, but the fact is you can have a short period of pain followed by a lifetime of pleasure, or you can have a short period of pleasure followed by a lifetime of pain. Love your significant other enough to have a short period of pain. Premarriage time is not that long, I promise you. Do you trust God to fulfill you, or do you need someone else to do that for you? See, I think a big reason why I crossed sexual boundaries in my own life was because I had a God-sized hole inside of me that I thought I had to find something to fill it with. So I tried to fill it with a girlfriend. And in doing so, not only did I hurt my relationship with God, I hurt both of our future marriages. I hurt her relationship with God. I was the only Christian in her life, and that was my example to her. So before you get ready to do something with someone sexually, I think a good rule of thumb is to ask yourself, how would you feel if someone else did this to your future spouse? If the answer is angry, maybe you shouldn't do it. Or maybe before you're getting ready to do something sexual with your own life, think, how would I feel if my future spouse was doing the same action right now? If the answer is not good, maybe avoid it. So if you're addicted to pornography, not only are you lusting, which is a sin, but you're also hurting your future marriage by giving yourself a distorted view of what sex is like. See, married sex, here's, just to let you all know, there's not like a huge plot line with it. In married sex, you don't have a big story with all the frills of the movies. In the movies, you like slam their bodies against a door. You rip their clothes off in a hotel. And in married life, you just like scan the key card and open it and say, let's go. And you have a snack beforehand, and then you kind of ba-ba-boo, and you're done. That's what real sex is like. Real sex is not some big story where you're like ripping and making grunting noises and all those things. That's not what real relationships are like. Real sex is also not building up a bunch of tension, making out, ruling around, getting all excited for the big event and saying, okay, I'm good. (laughs) No, that's uncomfortable. That's not natural. We were not designed that way. So why put yourself through all that pain before marriage? Just wait till you can have it all. No one goes to a restaurant just to get appetizers unless they're poor and they can't afford the main dish. No, you go to a restaurant to get the steak. Amen. So if you can't afford the steak, just don't go. And you can't afford the steak till you're married. Main idea is when sparks fly, we must trust the creator over his creation. We must trust the creator of sex over his creation. All right, I know we've covered a lot of stuff tonight, right? I've got to slowly watch your guys' faces go from laugh and glee as I talk about my fifth grade football team to down to frowning to anger and rage. It's so fun. So maybe you're here tonight. And if you're honest with yourself, you are feeling a lot of pain. Maybe you are angry with me. Maybe you don't want to tell yourself no. Maybe you don't want to feel all this guilt you're feeling right now. Maybe you want to satisfy the natural desires of your heart. Or maybe you just don't think the design that I created for sex, that is the design of God, is correct or fair. Or maybe you're not angry. Maybe you don't have like a pitchfork ready to kill me. But maybe you feel shame. Maybe your sex life has or does look like something outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Maybe you have an addiction to pornography. Maybe you're doing sexual things with or lusting after someone who's not your spouse. I know exactly how you feel. Because six years ago, I was in your exact shoes. I was sitting in a chair on the CAC, which is where we have morning prayer, which is where Kai Alpha used to meet. 
as my big brother, our former Chi Alpha director, gave this sermon on sexuality. So you don't like me telling it. Imagine I was your big brother, okay? It's way worse, I promise. In that season, I was engaged to my wife, Taylor, and we were crossing sexual boundaries. We were not living in God's perfect design. And I'll be honest, I was really mad at Daniel, my brother. I was ashamed. I remember feeling so dirty sitting there listening to this. So maybe that's you. Maybe you feel dirty right now. Maybe you feel like your situation's hopeless, that your lust is just too extreme. You're like, Pastor Derek, you don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through, what I'm doing. Or maybe your identity, who you are is wrapped up in your sex life. Maybe you think I am a porn addict. Or maybe you think your value is only in being their significant other and being with them, being their boyfriend or girlfriend, doing sexual things with that person. Maybe you think that's all you are. But earlier we talked about 1 Corinthians 6. That's when Paul told us to sprint away from sexual morality. And he ends his thought by saying this. 1 Corinthians 19 through 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I want to paint you a picture. So this was written as a letter to the church in first century Corinth. Corinth was a a hub for sex trafficking. So in the center of this town was a slave market. And in this market, people would buy and sell women like property. However, if you wanted to, you could go to this slave market in the middle of the city and you could buy a woman You could set her free and then offer to make her your wife, to love her and your family, to clothe her, to give her protection, to provide for her, to give her a home. This is what Paul is getting at with this statement. See, what he's saying is we are the women in the market. We are destined to slavery. We are in bondage to our sins, ready to be sold. But we are bought with a price. See, King Jesus bought us. Jesus set us free and gives us hope for a new home. So our sin puts us in bondage, and then Jesus pays the ultimate price of dying on a cross, of taking the most brutal form of death imaginable in that century, just to get the key to our chains, to open it up, and to set us free. And does he do that to make us his slave? No, he does that to make us his bride. every one of your sexual sins, every sin in general, not just sexual, can be covered because he's not going to leave you in your chains. He paid the price for those chains. He paid the price for your sins, but now he wants you to come home with him. Comer puts it this way, Jesus buys the shattered human who's known nothing but the pain of rape, prostitution, and shame, and he calls her his bride, and he makes her into something so beautiful. That's our identity not our sexual sins, not your sexual desires. Your identity is a son or daughter of Jesus. You're his chosen one. You're the apple of God's eye. But until we trust the creator over his creation, we'll never find freedom. It's like you're in a jail cell and Jesus opened the door wide open, but we're sitting in there in bondage. We can walk out, we're free, but until we're willing to trust God, we're just keeping ourselves in our bondage, staying in the prison cell. And Jesus is begging with us, saying, please come out of your prison cell. I want you. But until we trust him enough to know that he's good, we'll never walk out. We'll stay in bondage. But God has more for your life than a life of sexual bondage. 
See, God wants to set you free. God does not want you to be walking around living shameful. He does not want that. He wants you to have a life of freedom, a life of joy. That when we get ready to talk about sex, you don't feel shame and guilt because of your pornography addiction or your relationship. He wants you to be able to walk into this house with joy. So if we will trust God, even though it might not make sense to you, maybe you just, his design doesn't quite make sense, it doesn't add up, doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem loving. But if we will trust him and trust that, you know what, he is God, he created the universe, so he's probably smarter than I, even though I don't agree or get it, I'm going to trust him that he knows more in regards to sexuality. If we do that, we will find freedom and we will find a new identity as a son or daughter of Jesus. See, Jesus wants to take our dirty rags and he wants to make them something so beautiful. Jesus wants to cleanse us from all lust. Jesus wants to make us his bride and wash us white as snow. So if you're here and you feel shame or a burden, or maybe you just feel dirty, let Jesus clean you tonight and then change. Don't go roll around in mud again after Jesus cleans you. Because Jesus doesn't cleanse us just for us to get dirty. No, when Jesus cleanses us, he provides us a new way. He shows us how to be holy, how to be like him. He knows that we are happier when we are clean. He knows that if we cut off our sin, if we flee from sexual immorality, then we have a lot less pain. And don't dangle off the cliff trying to do whatever you can to just not fall off and set yourself up for failure. Don't make life harder for yourself than it needs to be. Just run to Jesus. Take the easy route. My, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want you to imagine a life where you don't need to feel shame when you think about sex. Imagine a life where you're not addicted to pornography, where you're honoring God with your relationship, where you have nothing to hide, where you feel free. Let Jesus pay for those chains tonight. Will you all stand with me? So if you're here tonight, and if you're honest with yourself, you feel like you've been in those, that bondage. Maybe not just with sexuality, but maybe with your whole life. That you feel like you've never really given Jesus the keys to your life. You've never accepted him as Lord and as King. And if you want to change that tonight, every week at Kai Alpha, we give an opportunity for that. So I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you're here and you want to say, Jesus, you are Lord, and to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three. And the reason we're doing that is not a sign for me, but it's a sign to God. It's like you metaphorically walking out of the prison cell. So if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you so much, God. Jesus, thank you for not leaving us in our dirty rags. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness, Father. We love you so much, God. We're going to have our response team, so just some student leaders who'd love to pray with you. They're going to go to the front. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, I'm not about to go pray with them. That's proving I've got sexual sin, and I'm not about to do that. I get where that thought process comes from, but I challenge you, if God's speaking something to your life, don't worry about what people around you are thinking, but instead go receive prayer, because that's you giving an opportunity to talk to God and receive freedom. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness, but to our community for freedom. So the response team is going to be up there, and if you want to pray with them, that would be great. And we'll also have our staff team. They're going to go into the back corners. So if you really want just someone who's a little more mature to pray for you, they'll be back there and they would love to pray with you. So in the back corners will be our staff team. Guys and girls will be back there. So if you want to go pray with someone, go pray with them. Because my big regret would be, I give you a lot of hard truth, right? This isn't that comfortable sometimes. 
but then we just let it sit here in a conviction moment. Let this change our life. Let God take care of your sin. So if you want to talk with someone in the back, that'd be great. We're going to sing the song one more time, The Pride of the Father. And remember that no matter what you've done, you are still the pride of your father. No matter how much sexual sin is in your life, you are the pride of your father. Jesus, we love you so much, God. Thank you for your goodness, Jesus. Thank you for loving us enough to cover our sins. We love you so much. Amen.